6: This is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Hey,
7: on behalf of Detroit, we want to present these buffs to our governor, Big Grinch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Grinch. We ain't even about to stretch, we got Big Grinch. You can find her in the press, under Big Grinch. Fresh in a new dress, yeah, that's Big Grinch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Grinch. We ain't even about to stress. We got Big Grinch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch and this bitch playing no role. Excuse all, all the cussing. That's just how I get my flow on. For real? If you want to leave the state, you can stay gone. But right now, Big Gretch said stay home. All that protesting was irrelevant. Big Gretch ain't trying to hear y'all or the president. How we going to take orders from a non-resident? Talking about it safe, but he ain't coming with the evidence got him shook now, when it's all over, you invited to the cookout, when it's all over, you deserve to get took out, Big Gretch with the buffs on, on the lookout, uh, and she doing it for Michigan, so when she hit the stand, everybody should be listening, she on that pair of buffs, with the ice in them glistening, on behalf of the whole Detroit mission, throw the buffs on her face, cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stress. We got big great. At all. You can find her in the press. Under big great. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's big great Throw Grinch. a bust on her face. Cause that's big great We ain't even about to stretch. We got big great. At all. You can find her in the press. <laughs> Under big great. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's big great. Big stretch.
3: More with PETA neuroscientist Emily Trennell straight ahead. Emily, um, you're a neuroscientist and, and research associate with uh, PETA, and as such, you work with um, uh, government agencies and researchers to offer them alternatives to using animals in their research to find cures for various things. How do you go about that, and and how is that information received? Do you think they're, they're glad to see alternatives to using animals? Absolutely. I
8: mean, the majority of scientists these days are realizing that, that will be the future of research. You know, like you said, animals have been used for so long. Um, And what we're finding out now, you know, we're not really doing experiments anymore where, you know, we're trying to find out, does a dog have a four-chambered heart like a human does? We're trying to design really sophisticated treatments to help humans from that suffer from diseases that we've so far not been able to treat. And many scientists, you know, when we share this data, we, we do get a lot of support from the scientific community, you know, really recognizing that this is going to be the way forward. Um, I think, you know, sometimes there is pushback because, like I said, scientists are, the, the incentive system in, in research is, Is flawed. You know they're supposed to be really. They're really being pushed to focus on getting grant, getting funding, getting money, and publishing their papers and keeping that cycle going. Um, And some people don't feel like they're they've been given the time and the resources to really learn a new method. Maybe they've been using mice for 20 years and they have their whole lab set up to use mice and there's. There's, they don't feel like there's a good enough um, support system for them to be able to switch uh, to a human-relevant method. So that's one thing that we are pushing the NIH to implement is is better training and support for scientists who want to learn and use these these better methods.
3: As a, a research associate for PETA, do you do research or do you study research and, and then... Uh... Based on on that study, um, lobby with different research organizations to change their methods.
8: I do a little bit, of, uh, quite a bit of both. Um, I, I before I came to PETA, I did the basic research, actually using animals, um, and it, it was doing that that I really came to realize um, on an ethical and a scientific level that it wasn't something that I thought should continue. Um, and now, I the kind of research I conduct is not necessarily at a lab bench, but uh, it's doing analyses of prior data um, to really highlight the, the inefficiencies of using animals. Um, it, but I also, you know, when we see, you know, other research groups are doing a lot of this research themselves and on how... Uh, human-relevant methods can replace the use of animals, and so we work with those groups and try to get that information out there to the to the decision-makers who need to see it.
4: Do you
3: um, look at, at other things, or are you primarily focused on sepsis at this point?
8: Uh, sepsis is a, a big focus area right now because and, and that's primarily because the data is just so clear um, that sepsis experiments on animals don't work. Um, it's just been documented for so long, and the NIH is still funding, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of these experiments. Um, but I do foc- I do work in other areas as well, um, including in, in neuroscience areas like antidepressant research, and overall, focusing on uh, policy level decisions about whether or not animals should be used in, in different areas.
3: In what does? Where are you at with this? Um, I, I don't. I don't know if you can quantify um, what percentage of, of researchers are adapting new methods, and getting away from uh, from using animals for this research. But but can you give it a go and guesstimate?
8: And yeah, well, the, the NIH seems to fund, um, and this has been true for several years now, about half of the research that it funds goes to animal experiments. Um, we're seeing more of a shift in the uh, toxicology realm so in you know, testing whether chemicals or products are safe for humans in the environment and um, that's an area where uh, non animal methods um, kind of really started to explode uh, first uh, because those you know those safety tests are critically important and the the data from animals just wasn't health protective for humans enough so but a lot of the, the so technologies really started to develop in that area and are spreading over, uh, to, to basic research more and more. So basic research for diseases like sepsis and, um, you know, antidepressant research and Alzheimer's and, and things like that. Uh, we're seeing more of a shift, but it's, it's not, it's very slow. <laughs> um, and that's one, why we're trying to push this issue. Uh, we have an overall plan uh, called the Research Modernization Deal, which is a stepwise strategy for replacing the use of animals in experiments um, with human-relevant research methods. So, this includes sepsis, and and sepsis is is such a big area where we can do this right away, Um, but it also includes other areas like cancer, um, addiction research, neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, So, we've developed this stepwise strategy called the Research Modernization Deal, and we are... um, Asking people to contact our Congress, peop- Congress people uh, using our web form to ask them to support the research modernization deal.
3: The alternative research is it showing promise in terms of, of getting results for treatments and possibly a cure for sepsis?
8: There has been there have been developments in that area. Unfortunately, there's still no cure and, and no better treatment. Um, but not long ago, a researcher um, at, at the University of Virginia, um, or it was a research uni- university in Virginia, he's a clinical researcher and he started treating his patients with a cocktail of uh, vitamin C and hydrocortisone and thiamine. It was just a really big dose of vitamin C. It was a big part of it um, and reduced mortality like sub- very substantially. Um, and this is something that was just done in clinical research and not having to use animals. And now I think there are... Eleven studies going on around the globe to verify uh, whether this this method, this treatment, will be uh, good for general, generally for sepsis over the human population.
3: Um, is there much published on sepsis and and the research going into it?
8: Yes, there there is a lot. Um, a lot of the research that's published. Um, over the past, especially over the past 20 years, um, a lot of review papers have put together all of the animal data and all the the failures in, in human trials that have resulted after those animal experiments to really highlight the problem, um, you know, documenting how there was a, baboons were used for a treatment that was supposed to show great promise in sepsis. It's it, it cured the baboons, um, but when it was tried in humans, it had no effect. Um, so there's a lot of documentation in the literature about those things and about a lot about, um, I mentioned earlier that physicians are really excited about using actual patient data and human genome data to better treat patients that are in the hospital. Um, and there is, a, there is a lot being published recently um, in that area highlighting how, it really needs to be more of an individualized treatment to to help people with sepsis.
3: Where is a good place for listeners to go to find out more information?
8: So listeners can visit at PETA.org slash RMD. That's uh, PETA.org slash RMD. Uh, we have a, that's our scientific document that outlines the problems of sepsis research um, as as well as other areas of research. And and on that page, you know, if if your listeners are supportive and want to help us with this plan of getting the NIH to adopt this, adopt, you know, stopping doing what doesn't work, uh, experimenting on animals for sepsis and other areas and, and start funding human relevant methods, they can use that form to very easily contact their congressperson. They don't even have to know who their congressperson is. It just put in your zip code, and it it fills it all out for you. Um, people can also visit peta.org, our main webpage, and search sepsis, and we have several uh, blogs and other uh, uh, research documents on sepsis where people can learn more.
3: Um, Emily, thank you for spending. Uh time with me this morning to share information about this and and for all the work that you do. Thank you.
8: It was wonderful speaking with you.
3: Great. Okay, take care. You as
0: well.
3: And that was uh, Emily Trinnell. She is a neuroscientist and research associate for PETA. And... um, We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. Old
9: fashioned
0: Radio For a
9: new generation The Tom Sumner Program.com Time Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Everybody's
0: doing a brand new dance now.
2: Hi, this is Mark Farner and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
6: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show.
3: Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guest this hour is... um Division Chief of Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, as well as the Medical Director of the Women's Integrated Pelvic Health Program. Her name is Dr. Kimberly Kenton, and she joins me by phone. Hi, Kim. Welcome to the show. Hi.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
3: Um, Now, I was just reading something uh, from you or or people that you work with. about your expertise with pelvic floor disorder. Now, I have to admit that was the first time I'd ever even heard the phrase, but um, I suspect that that's largely due to the fact that people, even especially women, um, don't talk about it.
1: Yeah, I think that that's one of the really challenging things about our field is that many people have never heard of it. And even though pelvic floor disorders is for women, which really encompass a group of disorders for urinary leakage or bladder control problems, accidental bowel leakage, and something called pelvic organ prolapse, where people have heard that your uterus has fallen or your bladder's fallen, which is basically a hernia of the vagina. And these disorders for women are more common than high blood pressure and diabetes, um, but it's not a group of, it's not very sexy, so people don't talk about it.
3: How, how does so it... many
1: women are out there suffering.
3: How did those particular um, conditions end up grouped as uh, pelvic floor disorders, and, and how did that become the name for it is there something anatomically that
1: i think that you know they they're obviously the bladder and the uterus and the vagina and the rectum are all in very close proximity to one another anatomically and historically when one of if someone had a problem with their bladder they would go to urologist if they had a problem with their uterus they'd go to a gynecologist if they had a problem with their bowel they go to a gastroenterologist or a colorectal surgeon, um, and these organs are literally millimeters from one another. And turns out the same nerves that innervate a lot of them are originate in similar places in the spinal cord. Um, they're supported by a group of muscles called the pelvic floor muscles, or your levator ani. Um, I think if you think about it, your pelvis, bony pelvis, is a bowl. The bottom of the bowl is a group of muscles called the pelvic floor that okay. support all those organs. And so what we learned, you know, 50 years ago, people would see a urologist for their bladder. Like I said, a gynecologist for their vagina or their uterus. And frequently that the problems were women, if they had one problem, they had multiple problems. So a new field was established. Um, called urogynecology or female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, where one specialist or subspecialist can take care of all the problems women have in that area rather than making them see three or four different doctors.
3: Is this more likely to occur in women who have uh, given birth or had children?
1: Yes. When you look at women in their younger ages, like the 30s and 40s, um, and even 50s, many of these disorders are more prevalent in women that have had vaginal childbirth or at least pregnancy, um, many of the issues, age is a great equalizer for all health conditions. Um, and by the time you look at women in their 60s and 70s, things like urinary incontinence actually have similar prevalence in younger and older women.
3: Now, as as we said a, a few minutes ago, uh, Kim, this is not something that Women are comfortable talking about? And and dare I say men? (laughs) Um, um, Yeah. It's. What are the risks of not talking about it, of not consulting at least your primary care physician?
1: Yeah, well, honestly, one of the things that actually attracted me to the field was when I was in medical school. Um, I rotated with a very prominent urogynecologist, and there was a woman who was 63, which at the time seemed ancient, and I was a big rollerblader, and she had given up rollerblading with her grandchildren because she was leaking through Depend and basically couldn't, like, do their activities that she wanted to do, and had been told by her primary care doctor that oh that's normal that's what happens to women when they get older and then I was able to participate in her care and go on and we did a pretty straightforward surgery on her and lo and behold she was within a couple months she was rollerblading with her grandkids again but I think part of it is the myth that as women age things like urinary leakage and accidental bowel leakage are more common but common certainly doesn't mean normal I mean Diabetes is more common, high blood pressure is more common, and we don't say, well, those are more common, so just deal with it. We treat them. Um, So I think a lot of it is just myths and misperceptions. And then there's obviously the social stigma of, you know, talking about the fact that you lose control of your bladder or you lose control of your bowel. Um, I think that some of the younger generations are doing a much better job of talking about it with one another, and treating it like a medical disorder, and not something that should have social stigma attached to
3: it. You were talking about this sixty-three-year-old uh, woman who had to give up rollerblading, and I, I was—I I wasn't even thinking about things that might be that strenuous. I was thinking about people who say, you know, that um, that when they laugh, they pee a little bit. <laughs> yeah.
1: One in three women that are even in their 30s and 40s will, will leak with, like, laughing or coughing. Or one of the big things we get in young moms is going in the bouncy house with their toddlers and their little kids. Uh-huh. And they start to alter their lifestyles, which is really, think about the long-term health consequences that if you're 35, um, you realize you leak when you laugh, you leak when you jog, so you stop jogging and you start doing some of the cardiovascular exercises. Um, and how not treating this disorder and not recognizing them can not only have, you know, social impacts for these these women, but it can really have some potential like long-term health consequences.
3: Well, I'm glad you brought up treatment because I was just thinking, um, you know, when you say that it's common but not normal, that suggests that it's preventable or at least treatable. Um, it. it If people can get past the stigma, what kinds of things can be done to prevent or treat it?
1: Yeah, I mean, prevention's a little bit harder because, like I said, one of the biggest risk factors is having babies and getting older. And most women are going to want to have a baby, and we can't figure out how to stop the aging process. Um, There's increasing, there's a consortium through the National Institutes of Health, um, which I'm a Northwestern is a participant called um, the PLUS Consortium, which is actually kind of a multi-centered group looking to figure out how we can prevent these problems. Um, Some of the initial, uh, the inciting factors like pregnancy or childbirth happen, and then many times you don't notice the problem for 20 or 30 years, so they're hard things to study prevention. Um, But we are working on that. Um, But I don't think we're gonna be able to prevent the neuromuscular decline that women have from aging. That said, there are some amazing treatments that we have. And the nice thing is, because these are quality of life disorders, we really spend a lot of time working with each woman, understanding how it's impacting her life and what her goals for treatment are. You know, some women want to run a marathon. Others just want to be able to, you know, pick up their grandchildren and not leak. And so we spend a lot of time kind of tailoring the... The treatment to the patient um, things can range from easy lifestyle modifications. Um, we and like in our practice we have ten specialized pelvic floor physical therapists. That that's all they do is work with, work with women that have pelvic floor disorders to to rehab that pelvic floor muscle that we were talking about earlier um, to help prevent some of these conditions. Um, there are simple office procedures that we can do, and there are really outpatient surgeries. The, the research and the data around some of the permanent or surgical corrections have really, in the last 15 to 20 years, changed dramatically. Um, where When I started, we used to tell women, oh, you're going to be in the hospital for three days if we do a surgery. You won't be able to lift anything heavier than five or ten pounds for three months. Um, And now pretty much all the surgeries we do are minimally invasive. They're outpatient. Women go home from the hospital the same day. We recently published a study um, in one of the big American OBGYN journals showing that women who we didn't put on like onerous lifting and activity restrictions, we sort of said, hey, go back to your activities as you see fit, listen to your body, um, had better symptomatic outcomes than the women that had that antiquated archaic lifting restrictions and activity restrictions.
3: Are there things that women can do during and immediately following pregnancy that that would help strengthen the area to prevent um, some of the difficulties?
1: Absolutely. Um, In countries like France, all women who have pregnancies and deliveries um, get funneled into a public floor physical therapy program, um, where they're able to rehab their pelvic floor, which we think, and some of the early data suggests, will prevent at least some of these issues down the road. Um, and in our our office, we have a specialized clinic called Peapod, um, which is for new moms. And so, every Friday, one of my partners, her name is Christina Lowicki out actually does a whole half day in the office just taking care of women who've recently delivered. They've either had a difficult or traumatic delivery or just realized after delivery that their pelvic floor is weak. Um, and then she has, works with a, our, a nurse practitioner, and a, there's a physical a couple physical therapists in that clinic that really start to address these problems real-time with women, um, you know, right after delivery. She actually has another study that she is getting ready to launch of doing some both education and pelvic floor muscle training during pregnancy um, to try to see if we can even lessen symptoms um, more dramatically after delivery.
3: You mentioned um, some of the things that have been published in in, uh, medical publications, but has there been much written on this?
1: You know, I think that there's, it's, it's getting increasing airtime, but still probably not what it should. And again, I think it's not sexy. Um, I think people like to talk about sexual health. They talk, like to talk about hormone replacement therapy and menopause. Um, but the fact that women are having bladder and bowel control or their pelvic organs are kind of turning inside out isn't super sexy. So it doesn't really make prime time. Media outlets, which is why I'm really grateful and so appreciative for the many, millions of women that suffer with these disorders, that you're actually including this on your show.
3: Well, I, I wish I had millions of listeners for you, Kim, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, if you could hit one. Well, but that's but that's the thing. I I always find it interesting to talk about things, especially these things that you know you describe it as as fairly common and yet I, i've never heard of such a thing and i talk to a lot of people honestly
0: yeah.
3: um yeah. so i
1: you know and men get them too
3: really and yeah. and what? i'm not
1: going to speak a lot about men because i don't take care of them but something like accidental bowel leakage is much more common in women in their younger years probably because of the role of childbirth. So when you look at patients in their 70s, the, the prevalence of fecal incontinence or accidental bowel leakage is the same in both men and women. So men are probably even suffering in more silence than women.
3: Well, yeah, that's, that's what we do. Um, but how can women approach this subject... With doctors, I mean, is it important to start with your primary care physician so that he might recommend specialists? um, Or are primary care physicians not really uh, educated in this area?
1: You know, I think that the primary care subspecialty organizations are doing a much better job at encouraging primary care doctors to screen for at least some of these disorders and since urinary incontinence is the one that probably is the most common, um, many primary care guidelines now recommend that during the primary care screening process, when your doctor is, you know, asking you if you wear a seat belt and if you smoke, um, they're supposed to ask if you have symptoms of urinary incontinence. Um, I do think primary care doctors, many of them initiate treatments for, some of, for urinary incontinence and some of these pelvic floor disorders, um, others refer pretty quickly which actually I think is reasonable to do either it kind of depends on each doctor's comfort level and you know primary care doctors have a lot on their on their hands they have a lot of different things that they have to talk to patients about and like i said i feel like every year there's increasing number of things that they're required to screen patients for um, most hospitals now and for sure at major academic medical centers Usually have a urogynecologist or two as well, or a female public medicine reconstructive surgery. Um, that can get the process started. And if your hospital does not have a urogynecologist, um, many times if you get patients to a just a general obstetrician gynecologist, they know how to how to filter the right patients into our specialty. Kim,
3: uh, you mentioned something I. I thought sounded kind of interesting that i i wanted to get into a little bit if primary care physicians are asking the right questions um as as you just described in a health screening uh, you know when they're talking about seat belts and smoking and you know do you have any bladder leakage that kind of thing is does that really help women open up about it, is it a lot easier than to say, oh, you know, now that you mention it.
1: (laughs) you know, I I think that that is not something that's been well studied, but I do think that if the topic is initiated, um, women are going to be more likely to talk about it than if not. I think that there's a lot of misconceptions in the community. Again, that that old myth that this is normal, this happens to women when they get older, there's nothing you can do about it. I hear a lot of my patients talk about when, you know, they finally get to me and they get help and they find out all the options. You know, everyone's got an an aunt who had, you know, well, their bladder had fallen or they had urinary leakage and they had a surgery and it didn't work or they had complications. And I think that things have changed so, so much and there's so much more data and there's so many great minimally invasive treatment options um, that... You know, if we could just get the dialogue
3: going, I think women are going to be more likely to seek treatment. And and is uh, uh, screening by medical professionals the best way to do that, or can we get patients to be thinking, you know, or maybe get them to think of this as um, less embarrassing? How, How can we do that? Is it just through education, or is there um, some statistical information somewhere that would put women at ease about bringing these things yeah, I mean, up?
1: honestly, I think it's conversations like this that are going to put it out there for women. They're going to hear this, and they're going to say, hey, wait, this is that common? This is something that happens to a lot of women and that there's good treatments for it that don't have a lot of adverse outcomes and side effects? Then maybe I should talk to my doctor about that. I think a lot of women um, just, it's by word of mouth and friends. I mean, I have a, in one of my offices, I have a group of women who are, you know, in their late 30s, early 40s who have completed child rearing and they're much more open about it with one another and, you know, I have a whole group of women from a kickboxing class that one patient came in and was leaking during kickboxing and we did a, a minimally invasive sling on her and she was cured and about five or six other women came from her class because she got back to her class and was like oh my gosh do you guys ever have this i had this i got this treatment i was back on my feet within two days and um and, and I, so I do think some of it's going to be word of mouth
3: and and it occurs to me that maybe uh normalizing the treatments would be more effective than normalizing the symptoms. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think, oh, absolutely, because we don't want people to think it's normal to leak urine or bowel, or you know, I mean, A lot of
3: people are going to think, "Well, that's cordon. just part of the aging process. I've got to deal with it." But if right. if treatment was better known and and more talked about, um, you know, yeah. perhaps more and people more accurate. Would see
1: it. I mean, I think. One of the limitations is a lot of what gets perpetuated about treatments are, you know, before we had a subspecialty, uh, female pelvic medicine or reconstructive surgery, I think that um, it's one of the reasons the American Board of Medical Specialties created female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, as it was not really being fully embraced by the different individual specialties. Um, So women were having some poorer outcomes um, without a lot of research to back it. I mean, it was really that the National Institutes of Health only started funding research into public core disorders and comparative effectiveness trials probably in the early 2000s. Um, So as a result, I think a lot of the things that were done, people were, doctors were doing the best they could, but there wasn't a lot of evidence for the treatments. Um, and now a lot of those myths about treatment outcomes get perpetuated. So I think if we did talk about treatments and, you know, you don't have to not do anything for three months, then some women still think, well, if I have that surgery, I'll never be able to be active again, which is the complete opposite of what we're trying to do. We're trying to fix their incontinence or fix their prolapse so they can be active again and do all the things that they want to do.
3: My guest is uh, Dr. Kimberly Kenton. She is the Division Chief of Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Um, Kim, I always uh, give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about and about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, Do you have a website?
1: We do. Our website is um, www.urogynecology.org. Well, I think it may be at nm.org. Um, and I actually think another really good patient resource is um, it's called Voices for PSD, um, which will, if you just put that into your Google search, it'll take you to the American Urogynecologic Society's patient portal. Um, which has a tremendous amount of very consumer-friendly information about what pelvic floor disorders are, what the treatments are, what the etiologies are. And on that website, there's also an opportunity to find a board-certified urogynecologist in your area. Um, So that's a great way to find a physician who has appropriate fellowship training and subspecialty certification. Um, to treat these disorders.
3: Well, Kim, thank you so much for spending time with me this morning and sharing this information with uh, my listeners.
1: I so appreciate you opening this dialogue for our, our patients.
3: Well, and thank you. Keep up the good work.
1: Thanks. Have a great day.
3: Take care. Again, Dr. Kimberly Kenton will have more of the Tom Sumner program straight <music>
0: The Tom Sumner Show. Oh,
4: yeah. Hello there, citizens.
10: Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out.
2: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
10: Oh, that Hollywood is murder. The doctors, oh, the doctors. <laughs> I, went to, I went to one while he was examining me. He grabbed me by the wallet and he said, Cough. <laughs> Wonderful doctor Gave a man six months to live Couldn't pay his bill Gave him another six months <laughs> Doctor called a lady Mrs. Cohn Your check came back She says yes So to my arthritis <laughs> little, man wa- little man walks on the doctor Doctor I've been ringing in my ear What'll I do She you don't answer walked in the doctor and he said, you're gonna live to be 60. He said, I am 60, what did I tell you? Man goes to the doctor and says, doctor, I'm having trouble at home with my love life. What'll I do? He said, take off 20 pounds, run 10 miles a day. Man calls him two weeks later, doc, took off the 20 pounds, I've been running 10 miles a day. Well, how's your love life? I don't know, I'm 140 miles away. I went to the doctor. I said, Doc, it hurts when I do that. He said, don't do that. He said, get undressed, I'll examine you. I'm standing there naked. He said, go over the window, stick your tongue out the window. I said, for what? He said, I'm mad at my neighbor. The doctor puts a stethoscope to my heart. I said, Doc, how do I stand? He said, that's what puzzles me. I said, Doc, my foot hurts. What'll I do for it? He said, limp. (laughs) He says to me, you're pregnant. I says, how does a man get pregnant? The usual way, a little wine, a little dinner. (laughs) man goes to a psychiatrist. He says, nobody talks to me. He says, next. She goes to a psychiatrist. She says you're crazy. She says I want a second opinion. You're ugly too. <laughs> There's a whole new world today. Ethnic jokes, they're around today. They have a new Polish jigsaw puzzle, one piece. Two Santa Clauses. Which one is Polish? The one with Easter basket.
9: The doctor was looking at the x-ray and I asked him, what do you see? And he kept on looking at the x-ray as he said in French to me. I see bones, I see gizzards and bones and a few kidney stones. Among the lovely bones, I see hips and fourteen paper clips, three asparagus tips. Among the lovely bones, I see things in your peritoneum that belong in the British museum I see your spine and your spine looks divine it's exactly like mine now doesn't that seem strange and in case you use paid telephones there's two dollars in change among your lovely bones x-ray it's really remarkable isn't the lumbar vertebrae supposed to be connected to the clavicle well I know but it's gotch tape hey look what's in there look at that it's a stamp it's a 1922 McKinley ultramarine blue with perfect perforations. I've got to get that out and put it in my collection. Look in there, there's printing. What does it say in
0: there?
9: U.S. Certified Grade A. Look at this, it's fascinating. See those little round things?
0: You
9: Know what those are? Those are M&Ms. <laughs> Those people are right, they don't melt. <laughs> Among the This was
0: another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. It's mm-hmm. not- Wow <laughs> Never, never oh. last